we already cured cancer in mice many, many, many times, except that we never can do that in humans because humans are not giant mice. When we do infectious diseases, we keep giving them infections, we keep giving them cancer without painkillers. And so, you know, these animals are literally the whole time in pain, in isolation. A big misunderstanding is people think like animal testing means that animals live good lives and at some point we just do something to them before we like humanely kill them. Today, I invite Dr. Faraz Harsini to talk all about animal testing. We learn why it is very outdated and actually sets us back in terms of medical advancement. We also discuss the numerous alternatives that already exist, which can produce much more accurate and human-relevant results. We also discuss policy, outreach, education, and what we can do to influence change. This episode is packed with information, so let's jump right in. Welcome to the EcoChat Podcast. In each episode... We chat with experts in conservation, animal welfare, sustainability, or environmental science to learn how you and I can make a difference for the planet. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Okay, where shall we start? How about we first define what is animal testing and what's the history? Basically, I think the origin of animal testing is we had something new. We either uh, were curious to see how bodies work, or we had something new that we wanted to test uh, on ourselves. Uh, But of course, it could be dangerous. So we look around and we found the most defenseless kinds of animals that we got our hands on. And we basically said, well, let's try it on them. And like any other technology, I think at some point in history, we relied on uh, animals such as When you think about it, we used to rely on animals to deliver messages with uh, pigeons or we used horses for transportation. So, um, but, you know, at some point we advanced both morally and technologically. So today we recognize that horses are no longer good solutions for current scale and demand and quality of transportation. We know that Pigeons are not the best thing if your house is being raided uh, or you are in some emergency situation. If we were going to, you know, rely on pigeons to deliver a message, we can see how many ways it can go wrong. So with animal testing, we are still relying on pigeon technology uh, for messaging. So uh, which is why we need more uh, education on that, what Um, to basically learn what alternatives are available and how we can pretty much advance uh, to a world where we don't abuse animals for testing anymore. So fast forward to today. What's the state of animal testing today? Like what are some of the most common use cases and what are the most common species being used? Yeah, there are several ways that animals are used in science. It includes um, dissection, um, and trainings. So that could be like high school training. It could be surgery training. Uh, sometimes military uses animals such as pigs to look at the impact of different guns and different impacts, um, radiation, stuff like that. Um, and, but majority of it, of course, is animals used in biomedical research. 
and um, used for testing for um, food or cosmetics. Um, and that ranges, um, that covers a whole lot of animals such as, you know, of course, rats, mice, horses, dogs, um, uh, birds. And, you know, of course, then you have labs that study certain like animals. So like, you know, owls and different birds and different species. But majority of them, of course, are uh, rats and mice and dogs and um, monkeys and, you know, other primates. Okay, so to summarize, the main areas of animal testing today would be biomedical research and also food and cosmetic testing. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, can you give us more details on each one of these? So, for instance, if you think about like cancer research, uh, what typically is done is that you um, inject mice or other animals with um, cancerous cells and you let the cancer cells grow and form a tumor or multiple tumors. And then you test your therapy, whether it's a chemical, whether it's a chemo, whether it's radiation, surgery, whatever that might be. Um, and then you basically test that. Uh, other way to do that is, for instance, to it's called knockout animals. So you want to build a model for certain diseases. You you're suspicious that certain genes cause certain diseases. Um, so they go and basically um, activate or inactivate certain genes. So animals are even born with certain diseases or show the same uh, symptoms. Uh, it could be also, uh, uh, you know, another instance is uh, looking at therapeutics for burning and uh, infection and stuff like that. So um, oftentimes they shave animals' body and then they burn them and then they put, you know, uh, the drug that they're studying. And of course, every time you have a control too. So you burn an animal, um, but you don't treat them and then you burn the other and you put the treatment, the lotion or whatever you're looking at on their skin and just see how they heal um, and, uh, that's one thing. Another thing is, for instance, you already have a drug, you know, it's safe, but you have to look at the drug concentration in their, in their body, right? So, uh, let's inject mice with, you know, whatever antibody, whatever vaccine, whatever, uh, drug that you're studying and measure the concentration in their plasma after one hour, after two hours, and just see how they're secreting the product out, how they're metabolizing the product. And, um, yeah, so, and lastly, there is also the amount of drug or any given chemical that can actually kill an animal. So let's just force feed mice with, uh, let's say, literally anything. Imagine if it's a new food, if it's a new uh, drug, we just have to overfeed or overdose animals and just understand at what concentration this becomes deadly in different animals, which has, which can be informative, but at the same time, uh, it can be misleading. Right. Something this is to out, calculate the lethal dose amount, right? Correct. But just something to point out here is that anything that we do to animals, we learn something about it, right? So, um, 
I could, you know, do something crazy to an animal and just see what they do. So anything that we do, we're going to learn something. But the question should be, uh, do we have a better way to learn the same thing? And the thing that we are learning from it, uh, is it applicable to humans? So yes, I may learn how to cure cancer in this mouse, but can I apply that to humans? So that's something to consider. So you mentioned a few examples there, and I don't know about anyone else listening, but to me, when I hear that, for example, you you burn the animal to test out a treatment, but then for the control, you need to compare it objectively. So you burn another animal, but you don't treat it. So you just cause it pain just because. Or, you know, injecting cancer into a mouse. Or even worse, like you said, modifying the DNA so that it's already born with cancer and it lives a horrible life from the start. Or here's another one that really resonates with me. Overdosing the animal with everything, anything and everything, whether it's a drug or food or cosmetic, in order to test out the lethal dose amount. I mean, all of this sounds unethical and unnecessary. So what's the justification to keep doing this? Yeah, I mean, you're making a good point here. The the fact that I think a big misunderstanding is people think like animal testing means that uh, you know, animals live good lives and at some point we just do something to them before we like humanely kill them. Um, or that a lot of times promoters of animal testing, they say, oh, you know, we um, put animals down before we, you know, harvest their organs or whatever. But something to consider is that these animals suffer throughout the entire process from the moment that imagined are born with cancer. Just think about some person um, like a human who has like major infection. I always say, just imagine yourself having like a simple flu or like a cold, right? You're miserable. You're, you don't want to do anything. Imagine how much you want this to just end as quickly as possible. But imagine when we do infectious diseases, we keep raising animals. We keep giving them infections. Um, we keep giving them cancer without painkillers. And so um, you know, these animals are literally the whole time in pain, in isolation, and uh, and that's just the physical pain, not to mention the, the psychological pain of isolation, being away from their families, um, and something else that we ju- generally don't think about is uh, imagine a child getting like a vaccine or, or a shot, um, and they often like, cry uh obsessively and the reason for that is not really the physical pain it's the fact that they just don't know what's happening to their body so as adults it's still painful you could argue that the amount of pain is not that different than you know a child but at least we can justify we know that this person is not gonna hurt us we know why we are taking this drug uh when we get an injection but for a child they just don't know what's happening they don't know the justification they can't think logically so just imagine when you grab an animal, and this is the simplest procedure to just like take them out of their cage, um, basically uh, restrain them, uh, take their blood, take their samples, do biopsy. And imagine you're a mouse and some other creature, I don't know, 500 your times grabs you. You don't know what's happening. You don't know if this person is going to kill you or, is, you know, so... Uh, the amount of stress and psychological pain is something that we often also don't think about. Um, 
when these animals are grown that way. But to answer your question that why it's happening, I think um, some of it is just the legal challenges, uh, mandatory animal testing, which we had a big breakthrough last year on that when FDA removed the mandatory animal testing for certain uh, cases. Um, so, But that just shows you how much progress uh, uh, we still need to make and how much these laws can actually dictate what happens to animals. Um, so there is the legal impact, but at the same time also scientists, um, a lot of people who do that are like old-fashioned and scientists are just like people, right? So they are, when they learn something, they don't want to change their minds. Um, a lot of people who do these kind of things, they already spend a career doing animal testing. So now you're telling them that, there is a better way to do things, right? So there is always a resistance. Um, so um, I think a part of it is just like us bringing this education to universities to talk about it, to make it okay for people to publish without animal testing. I'm a journal reviewer, and sometimes I see that people do animal testing literally just because they want to make sure their paper gets a chance to be published because they have to show, quote unquote, what they do is clinically relevant. So their 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 work has nothing to do with animal testing, but then they just do it at the end just to show that there is clinical relevance, which we can get into that later, that also just the fact that it works in a mouse doesn't mean that it's going to work in humans, and it can be actually misleading. But just to say that there is this expectation from scientists to keep doing it. Yeah, I'm also curious to learn more about the FDA's removal of mandatory animal testing, but um, we can get to that when we discuss the policy side of things. But going back to the justification for a sec, I'm trying to put myself in the perspective of an average Joe, who I think they're coming in from a kind of a selfish human race perspective, where I think most people think well, to test out ways to cure cancer, of course we don't want to test it out on humans. It's better to sacrifice some animals to do the testing. And we choose mice most of the time because mice, I think, have over 99% similarity with our DNA. That's why we choose them. And so I think the, the main justification for a lot of us is, well, let's sacrifice something which is very similar to us to, to test these things out for the benefit of the human race, to cure cancer, to cure COVID, to cure whatever for humans. So what are your thoughts on this justification? Yeah, I mean, I certainly understand why we want to do that. Um, so that I have, I guess, two perspectives to share. One is the ethical perspective that would you be doing the same thing with your pet? So would you give me your pet so that I can inject them with cancer and make them suffer, burn their skin, keep them in isolation, torture them for the benefit of humanity. If your answer is no, then you already know that doing this to other animals should be wrong. So just because someone becomes your, your pet does not give them extra advantages. You already understand that all these animals can suffer. They can, uh, And of course, we learn something, but it doesn't justify uh, doing it to them. We could make the same argument with humans. We could uh, we could say, well, 
for the benefit of humanity, let's just uh, do human testing forcefully on some people, right? Yes, they're gonna they're gonna be miserable, they're gonna suffer, but it's gonna be good for the for for the big picture, for for the survival of humanity. We already know that's wrong. Even when you think about, let's do that with prisoners. Let's do that with people who literally like rapists and murderers and people who clearly have done terrible things. Um, uh, even when you think about like forcing them to be a part of animal testing, it's literally what Nazis did, right? So um, we already recognize just because we benefit from it, that doesn't make it right. Of course, if we do it on humans, we actually get a lot more benefit because it's human relevant, but we recognize that it doesn't make it right just because um, we learn something that can be helpful for humans. So I understand that for average Joe, there is a difference between human animal and other animals, so I get that. But the point that I'm making is that we can already see that just because we learn something new doesn't mean that we have the right to, to do it. So that's an ethical argument for it. But funny enough, we don't even actually have to go there because I argue that uh, we already have better alternatives that are safer for people. So if your argument is that you want to make sure that that's something that is safer for humans, then you are already advocating for alternatives to animal testing. I think one of the biggest misunderstandings with uh, with people is that they think when if we don't test on animals, that means that we are putting humans in danger, which is completely opposite. It couldn't be farther away from truth. Not only animal testing um, is not helping, uh, but also is holding us back. So the way to look at this is that if we didn't actually uh, um, use animals for animal testing, if a uh, hundred years ago we started moving away from that, today we had as such better alternatives that we would have been so much ahead of where we are today in terms of like advancing biomedical research. But of course, we are still using horses. We are still using pigeons. Um, so again, to, to use that analogy, it's just imagine if people said, no, pigeons are essential for communication, which they were, uh, I don't know, 200 years ago. Um, so imagine if people like persisted that no pigeons are essential. We're not going to move. They're good for communication. And imagine if today we were still using pigeons. Um, you could argue they every now and then they would benefit us for communication. They would have been probably better than nothing. But imagine if the technology stopped there. We didn't have telephones. We didn't have uh, internet. But the fact that we didn't resist and we advanced. That's why we have so many better ways to communicate. So uh, I think to just summarize, people need to understand that alternative to animal testing means that uh, it's not only better and ethical, but also um, it's better for people. We It gives us opportunities to test new drugs, to do high-throughput drug screening, to do and uh, to do testings that are actually human relevant. So, um, uh, you know, the, the cancer that you're testing, it's actually human relevant cancer, not treating cancer in mice. And then we can talk about why that 99% genetic identity or similarity doesn't really hold. 
Yeah, let's talk about that before I ask my next question. Yeah, so a very famous clinical trial is TGN-1412 that was done in England um, not that long ago, just a couple of years ago. Um, the footage of this clinical trial is online on YouTube. You can actually go and look at the actual footage um, of the cameras that what happened to these people. So this was phase one clinical trial, meaning that testing a new drug on healthy volunteers. Um, phase one clinical trial is generally very limited number of healthy individuals that you test your drug. Typically, it comes after preclinical studies, which is another name for animal testing. Um, so in this case... So phase one is testing on humans? Yes. So clinical okay. trials are always on humans, but preclinical studies means testing on animals and lab testing, which is kind of included in that. But clinical trials, phase one is healthy healthy volunteers and phase two and three are basically uh, patients or epidemiological uh, studies. Uh, but yeah, so TGN-1412, they, before they went to healthy volunteers, they tested the drug in primates um, and they tested it in 500 times more dosage than they would test it on humans, and they showed it was safe. That is a lot. 500 times extra dose in monkeys showed to be safe. So when they lowered the dosage by 500 times in humans, the side effects were so extreme, they had to uh, basically amputate some of the volunteers' toes and uh, fingers, uh, they had so many, so much inflammation, cytokine storm, that one of the participants was, um, he was so um, inflamed that he looked like an elephant. And that's why the clinical trial is actually famous for elephant man uh, clinical trial. And within minutes of injection of this drug, people had ma major organ failure. And all of that because we were overconfident um, from animal testing. And this, these are monkeys. These are primates. We are primates, right? So that shows you that even when the immune system, in this case, their target, the um, I believe it was a T-cell receptor, was like virtually identical to humans. But it just shows you that the very little difference in our genetic makeup makes a huge difference in the way that we react to um, drugs. Right, so, and these are primates, which are even more related to us than mice, right? Right. So just thinking about what percentage of our DNA is similar or identical is not the good way to look at this. Because if you really think about it, I'm 44, uh, 40 to 44% like banana, right? Okay, I'm, I'm like sharing my DNA with banana. But I'm not 40% banana, right? Um, so just because majority of DNA is identical with another species, that just doesn't say much. The same way that, like I mentioned, humans are not 40% bananas just because 40% of our DNA is banana. Um, right. So Can you repeat the name of the trial so I can add it to the show notes? Yes, TGN-1412, Elephant Man Clinical Trial. Got it. Very interesting. Tells you that you know when we talk about uh, genetic identity, that just doesn't say much. Um, and another way to really think about it, just imagine 
a chimpanzee who is our closest uh, evolutionary uh, relative, right? So just think about, just imagine a chimpanzee and, I don't know, Albert Einstein uh, side by side. All those hairs, the nose, the ears, the uh, hairy body, uh, their size, their intelligence, all of that. All of that comes in a fraction difference in our DNA. So you can imagine, just just extend that to our immune system, extend that to our uh, biochemistry. Um, uh, or another prime example of that is like dogs, right? So dogs are mammals. Um, uh, turn out if you give dogs chocolate, what happens? Chocolate is toxic to most mammals. So... Um, you see the problem there, right? Just because share ninety over ninety five or ninety nine percent of our DNA with other animals, that doesn't mean that the data we get from them is applicable to humans. Again, I take it back to animal testing. Imagine we give chocolate to a bunch of different mammals and we kill all of them. So that leads to misunderstanding in humans. We are gonna say, okay, so chocolate is gonna be toxic in humans because it was toxic in other animals. Um, if it was a drug, it would have never made it to humans. If it failed in mice and dogs, we would have never tested in humans, but it could have had the potential to cure certain diseases. So you see how it's going to hold science back. Yeah, it's a big fallacy, huh? Yeah. I really like your analogy on using pigeons for communication, which today would be completely unnecessary because... We have much superior technology to do this, right? Such as phone, email, etc. So carrying that analogy to animal testing, what are some of the technologies or alternatives that we can use to replace animal testing? So that's a good question. Um, and, and something just before I answer that question is to realize that animal models are not the gold standard. So oftentimes people are looking for an alternative that works 100% of the time, right? So what is that alternative that just does not give you a false positive or false negative? It works all the time. Well, that doesn't exist, and neither um, uh, animal testing is that accurate. So you just have to realize that animal testing oftentimes actually fails. So as long as you have something that is nearly as good or better, you already have a case. And I'm going to say that we already are there. And not only that, we are not in a perfect situation. We still need a lot of development. And these developments happen if we stop animal testing and invest in better models, right? So uh, we need to uh, first realize that pigeons are not good enough for um, communication. Horses are not good enough for transportation in order to invest in better cars, ships, planes, and all that. I just want to say that before we get into alternatives. But yes, when it comes to alternatives, for instance, there is in, in vitro testing. So these are testing that can be done in a lab. Now, these are simpler than animal testing, but they are human relevant. So it comes with pros and cons. Again, the pro here is that you can isolate molecules from humans. So when you do testing in the lab, you're actually using human relevant material. Um, this is as opposed to when you test in an animal. The pro is that animals are complex 
um, basically systems. They have multiple organs and you can look at different things. But the cons here is that, first of all, the complexity can lead to false positive and false negative because then you get so much complexity out outside of your control. Um, and at the end of the day, the other con is that it's not human relevant. So yes, you learned how to cure cancer in mice, but that doesn't tell you anything about how to cure cancer in humans. And oftentimes we actually, we already cured cancer in mice many, many, many times, except that we never can do that in humans because humans are not giant mice. So, um, in which role human related animal, te- uh, human related, uh, testing is a very good alternative. The other one is, uh, basically using high throughput, uh, robots and drug discovery screening machines. Uh, these robots can test thousands upon thousands of chemicals in a matter of hours or days. This is something that we can never do with animal testing. Um, Animal testing is also not replicable just because animals vary uh, as individuals. So um, when you do that with high-throughput robots, you um, um, basically control the experiment so much better. So you have a better internal validity, meaning that your results are more reproducible. It's done by robots. You can do thousands upon thousands of drug screenings as opposed to animal testing. For animal testing is very expensive. Uh, imagine if you have 1,000 drugs, there is no way that you can run 100, like 1,000 uh, drug screening, uh, screening on animals. It just doesn't work that way. Um, and remember, for animal testing, you need uh, multiple animals per test. You need different sex and groups. So different sex per group. You need control. You need uh, treatment. So it's, it's not like one animal per drug. Right, so you need probably tens of animals just per drug, and then it takes a lot of time as well. So these machines that are used in high throughput testing, how exactly do they work? So these are basically um, uh, plates. What what we call them as plates? They have uh, you know a number of wells, ninety six or even more wells per plate. So you can put your drug in each well. Uh, the robot takes care of all the pipetting. Um, and the screening and all of it is going to be in vitro testing. So um, it could be based on, uh, you know, a number of different biochemical and uh, biophysical assays that you can run, um, changing colors, uh, different, there are many different ways to do that. But basically you have a robot that runs the entire process. Right. And you're, you're testing on human cells, right? Human cells. It can be human cells. It can be, um, it can be also molecules that are from humans. Um, so, for instance, I'm gonna look at a certain protein uh, in humans. I want to see what drug binds to this protein to either activate it or deactivate it. Uh, where can I get that protein from? Um, I can either isolate that protein directly from human blood, so people voluntarily donate blood. It finds its way to pharmaceutical business. You purify this drug, uh, this protein, and then you can test it. Or you can actually produce this protein that is human protein in other organisms, such as like E. coli, such as yeast. It's called uh, recombinant protein production. 
So you can purify it. You can uh, then test that in a lab. And that's something very typical. It's not like rocket science. We do that all the time. Pretty much all biomedical research is done um, with uh, recombinant proteins. So it's a very uh, easy and well-understood technique to produce human-relevant proteins and uh, other material using this technology. So that's how you can do that. But when you when you use mouse, then you're testing this drug against a mouse version of that protein, which may or may not work the same way in humans, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So you mentioned in vitro testing, high throughput testing. What other techniques do we have? And then, of course, a part of in vitro testing is also cell lines. So instead of uh, giving mice human cancer, you can actually... Uh, extract human cancers from human tumors and basically establish a cell line and uh, test many different drugs and their combinations in a very well-controlled environment in these petri dishes and uh, cell lines. So there's that. Um, Sorry, what is a cell line? Cell line is basically when you isolate cells from a tumor or from a patient or from any animal, and then you basically characterize that uh, cell, you isolate it, and then you start growing those cells in a way that you know that all these cells are genetically identical and they have the same characteristics. So then every time you want to test a drug, you basically take cells from this cell line that you established and characterized, and you use that for further testing. So every time you go back to that, you know that the cells are identical. Got it. What else do we have? Yeah, so then we have organoids. Um, These are basically more advanced than cell lines. So in cell lines, you're using 2D cells. So these are basically just cells that you grow in a lab. But with organoids, these are actually tiny organs. And you can basically have organoids that mimic the function of brain to a degree. Um, And uh, these are like pretty advanced and, you know, Columbia University is using them. Texas Medical Center has uh, developed mini brains that um, basically to maximize research. Um, Oh, wow. So they basically grow human brains in a lab. Basically. So these are tissues. These are organs. So these are more complicated than just individual cells, right? Then another... uh, thing available to us is uh, AI and machine learning and um, basically the power of supercomputers. Um, Again, to give you an idea, imagine your target molecule that you want to activate or deactivate is like a lock. And then you have a library of chemicals and you want to just see which, which one of these chemicals or which one of these keys open the lock. Right? So how would you go about that? You can either go and grab every single key and test it against the lock and see which one opens it and it takes as long as there are keys. Or you can use computers and computers can look at the structure of all these keys and computer can look at the structure of your lock and say, based on the data that I have, these keys have the potential to work with this lock. And the beauty of this is this can be done in a matter of like uh, days or hours. These are like supercomputers. 
They look at the structure of food, proteins, or um, basically drugs. Um, the technique is actually called docking. Um, so it basically takes the structure of a protein, takes the structure of your drug, and it basically brings them. It uh, looks at every orientation the drug and your target can actually interact and see at what point they could possibly fit and interact. I will basically tell you that from these 1,000 drugs that you gave me, uh, these five have potential to activate or deactivate your, your target. And then you can go back to your uh, in vitro testing and actually test it in the lab and see which one works. So this is something that you could never do with animal testing. So that's another one. Another thing is phase zero of clinical trials. So phase zero is basically microdosing. And it's very intuitive, right? So every time you buy a new lotion, it always says, uh, test it um, in a corner of your hand or something before you, you know, cover your face with it, um, just to see if you may um, have any kind of allergic reaction to it or something. So phase zero of clinical trials is basically that. It's microdosing. So instead of giving people the full dose, uh, you basically microdose them and uh, the beauty of it is uh, if there is any severe drug interaction or uh, side effects, then you can control them and they're not going to be that toxic or uh, uh, deadly. So for that clinical trial, for instance, TGN-1412, if instead of testing on monkeys to show that it's safe in humans, which turned out it wasn't, if we actually did microdosing, so instead of giving them a full dosage for humans, we gave them just a little bit, and we could measure that, oh, these people clearly have some, you know, mild uh, reaction to this drug. We already would have stopped it and there was no need to give them the full dosage because we were overconfident uh, over animal data. I was going to be a devil's advocate and counter that one of the disadvantages of doing in vitro testing is that you're only testing the effects on these isolated molecules or organelles, but you don't know the side effects on the entire human body. So would coupling this with microdosing on humans, would this be the ideal strategy to test out the side effects on the entire human body? Yes. So that would basically solve that problem. In addition, um, again, I guess it's very important to realize that you're not comparing this to an actual gold standard. So it's not like if you actually tested that in, in animals, you would learn something that is human relevant, right? So what is your other alternative if you don't do this? To test it on animals, to test it on, on a mouse, right? But then the question is, will you be able to, to take that information and say that this is exactly what's going to happen in humans? Of course not. We've shown that many times. It may happen to work in humans as well, but it's purely based on luck. So there is no guarantee. You just can't, you can never say because it works in mice or because it failed, it's going to do the same thing in humans. And as a matter of fact, if it fails in mice, it could still have potential to work in humans, but you would never develop that drug. You would never make it to clinical trials because it failed in humans. Just imagine how many opportunities to treat uh, you know, top killers uh, 
we just missed because we had to stop because they didn't work in animals, right? So how many potential candidates uh, just never made it to humans just because they failed in, hum- uh, in, in animal models? And vice versa, how many times something worked in animal models, but we took it in humans, we spent time, we spent money, it ended up either completely failing or even worse, hurting patients like TGN 1412, right? So you realize how testing on animals not only prevents us from finding better drugs, but also it can actually be deadly. So if you care about patients, if you care about humans, um, don't think that animal models are helping that much. In cases that they happen to help, um, uh, those are basically very limited numbers that happen to work in both um, other animals and humans. And um, there is also, so there's microdosing, but then you also have human volunteers. Now, human volunteers, uh, people might feel uneasy about this, but um, here is something that you need to know. Sometimes there are patients that are uh, waiting for uh, an experimental drug to be developed for them, and they don't have a plan B. So I work in a pharmaceutical company. We were developing an antibody for inflammation to reduce inflammation um, for pancreatic cancer patients. So these were stage four pancreatic cancer patients, meaning that they only had three months to live. So the, the drug we were developing could only help them feel better and suffer less throughout those three months. There is no hope for these patients, unfortunately. So, but these patients couldn't have our drug despite the fact that our drug was uh, shown to be safe in um, in vitro using like relevant cells. Not only that, but also our drug, I don't want to go into details, but our drug was uh, uh, biosimilar to other drugs that have been shown safe to both other animals and humans. So there was a case that we could make that this drug is so similar to what already has been shown to be safe in humans. We have a lot of data to show that it's been safe in vitro. Uh, But guess what? These patients couldn't have these drugs even when they wanted it because we we were mandated to to test on animals. And what that generally means is that it's going to take between three to five years uh, and these patients just simply don't have that much time. So put yourself in place of these patients. Imagine you're suffering, you're, you have three months. At that point, every drug on market has failed you, and you have this experimental drug that is your only hope to feel better or possibly to, to cure your disease. But guess what? You can't have it because it has to go through five years or three years of animal testing. And guess what? If it happens... To, to fail in animal testing, then no one will ever have that drug. So these are ways that we are putting patients in danger. We are killing people because we are mandating animal testing. And I guess most people are also familiar with organs on chips. So these are basically organs that are grown on tiny chips or microfluidic devices. Um, and to my shock, actually one of the I always thought that these are not complex systems because you're just looking at lung or whatever tissue, but you can actually have multiple organs on these tissues and see how different organs are working together. And again, is it as complex as 
uh, a body, an animal body? Of course not. Uh, but again, you know, it doesn't mean that when you test it on mice, it's not human relevant at all. But with organs on chips, it's going to be human relevant. So that's a benefit. That's a huge benefit. Got it. Anything else you want to add on these alternative techniques and the best strategies to use with them? Uh, it's basically so organs on chips and uh, in vitro testing and using cell lines, all these have the benefit of uh, advancing personalized medicine. So what personalized medicine means is that currently, if you have cancer, you probably, the way it's going to work is you're going to see your doctor. They probably would uh, give you a certain chemo. And as many other drugs, if, you, if you've noticed, you, you see a doctor, they say, test this, come back to me in three months and see how you feel. And if it's not working, then we're going to try something else. Why can't they know if the drug is going to work? Because we are genetically, even between humans, we are genetically diverse enough that there is no guarantee that this drug, the way that it's going to work in me, it's going to be identical in you. So uh, personalized medicine is a solution to that problem. So if you have cancer, we can take your cancer cells, we can grow it in the lab, we can test different chemo in the lab on your cancer and see which one is is going to work uh, because certain cancers could be uh, uh, resistant to certain chemo. And there is no way for us to know that uh, unless we do genetic testing or we take these cells in the lab and test different types of chemo and see what works. So this is amazing. Personalized medicine is going to be the future of medicine and it's going to reduce a lot of side effects, a lot of, you know, wasting time, money, all that. So, and this is something that literally is the future of medicine, and it's all about alternatives to animal testing. This is not anything that we can be doing with uh, with animals. Very fascinating. So you shared with us a lot of these promising alternatives that are clearly better than animal testing, which can often generate a lot of false positives, false negatives, and just set us behind in terms of medical advancement. So since we already have all of these solutions. What's the trend been for animal testing? Has it gone down in recent years? I think it's one of the things that we, you know, there's like two steps forward, one step backwards. Um, um, you know, some countries ban cosmetic testing and then, or some states, and then they go back. Um, there is a constant fight, unfortunately. Um, and it's also important to realize that there is a whole business behind it. Um, for you know businesses that sells uh, sell animals or animal testing, so because of that, um, you know the the progress is slow. But that means that just means that we need to focus more on education, on alternatives, uh, convince the governments, and really focusing on the fact that it so it saves people. Um, it's better for the for people. Uh, I think that's a very good argument to be made that it's cheaper, it's safer, it's faster, it saves lives. And, you know, governments don't really care about animals, but everybody cares about saving money and saving lives. So uh, we really have to focus on these and basically try to fight until we have these goals set in place. So to summarize, I just want to make sure I get this correct. The rough trend is animal testing is starting to be banned in some places, 
but at the same time, it's also being outsourced to other places, which I assume might have a cheaper cost. Yeah, or some countries, for instance, uh, there are places in the U.S. that they they don't really want to test on animals, but then they export their products to China, and then China's government really requires like animal testing. So they don't want to do it in the U.S., but in order to have a market in another country, they have to do it. So, you know, the solution for that is either they lose their market in the U.S. because they're testing on animals, um, which can happen. And, you know, a lot of companies that don't test on animals and they have that brand that is like cruelty-free, some do care about animals, but some also realize that it's a marketing decision for them because they know that if they advertise that as cruelty-free, if it is cruelty-free, then they appeal to another group of people. And the good thing about uh, animal testing, especially when it comes to cosmetic and different things, is that public is actually pretty much against it. So that's a very good thing that we have to to defend our case, that typically just public, like if you ask people, no one really wants to test laundry detergent in rabbits' eyes. Everyone recognizes that we should have better alternatives. So we have to harvest that potential. Okay, let's move on to the policy side of things now. You mentioned a few times that animal testing is mandatory for a lot of cases. For example, the the treatment for pancreatic cancer that you mentioned, the patient has to wait three to five years for it to get FDA approved. And for it to get approved, you need to do animal testing. So what's the state of policy right now? And what types of things still require animal testing? I think we are making a lot of progress and it just shows you how much these laws can impact the state of science. Um, so we just got FDA Modernization Act 2.0 passed thanks to Senator Cory Booker um, and another Republican. It was a bipartisan uh, uh, case. Um, and But just to show you how crazy it is, the FDA Modernization Act, the first version, was uh, basically uh, set in place around World War II where computers weren't a thing. So modern, this was before invention of modern computers, right? So, so with World War II technology, imagine like the, the medical technology back then. So back then it was determined that animal testing was necessary and mandatory. Um, and we've been doing that the whole time, despite the fact that today we have like AI, AI technology, we have computers, we have so many other alternatives that I just mentioned. And none of that was included in the law. And the law is still not perfect. So it's mostly about cases where you can show that it's like biosimilar, uh, then you don't have to test on animals. But another good news is that like, for instance, uh, I visited EPA's uh, headquarters in Research Triangle. And, you know, EPA is dropping all uh, mammalian testing by 2035. So unfortunately, it's a long time, but you can see that they're dropping uh, mammalian testing, which is, you know, still a good step. And every step when you take, that means that there is more money for alternatives. There's going to be more data to show how alternatives are more accurate. Um, it makes a case that 
uh, if EPA can show that water is safe, air is safe, and these toxic chemicals that they're testing, you know, they do a lot of toxicology. So if EPA gets to do toxicology without mammals, that means that, you know, no one else should. Uh, that means that there is alternatives. Uh, a good way of generally thinking about it is like we already have cosmetics that are not tested on animals, like toothpaste, right? When was the last time that you used a vegan tooth toothpaste that, um, you know, after you used it, your teeth fell off, right? So I think like we can already agree that we can prove that these products are safe enough already uh, when it com comes to cosmetics. So there is no need to test these on, uh, you know, rabbit eyes and force feed dogs, laundry detergents to just confirm the, their safety. So that just, yeah, when, when we advance with laws, uh, it makes it a lot easier for other companies to follow. Right. So two follow-up questions. For the FDA 2.0 Act, what are some of the most noteworthy changes in regards to animal testing? And my second question is, you mentioned EPA. It's great that they are making progress. They've decided to remove mammalian testing by 2035. But, I mean, 2035, that is 12 years from now. So why does it take so long if they've already decided to do it? Why does it take 12 years? Yeah, so um, FDA Modernization Act uh, 2.0, um, I think, allows... Um, development of drugs that are um, biosimilar to other molecules that we already have shown their safety. So if you can show that these are similar molecules, I think you can skip um, animal testing, which is still a big progress. Uh, and to answer your second question, um, the reason that it just takes a long time is because some of the alternative um Animal testings, uh, they have to be validated. So we have to do them enough to compare to animal testing and just basically make a case that, you know, accumulate data basically to show that it works and it's better. Um, but at, at the same time, when you have generally biomedical research is very slow, like any other system, right? Just imagine when we had computers, then you had to go from governmental agencies to go from like filing everything as like hard copy to, to computers. And then you always have a long transition. So with science, it's always just like that, except worse because, you know, when we learn how to do something, we just don't want to change that. We gather so much. People are so com comfortable with things, with the way things are, that they just don't want to change them uh, quickly. So that's why it takes a long time. There are basically, in summary, there are two two reasons. One is we just need to accumulate more data and over time increase our confidence. And second is just because bureaucracy and how long things take when it comes to government. It's not because we just don't know how good alternatives are. Right. To clarify, what exactly does the EPA do or what cases would this apply to? For like toxicological tests or... Uh, let's say um, they're concerned about uh, whether this compound is toxic for the environment or not. You know, whether it's you buy any chemical for the labs, you know, behind it, it says the, um, you know, lethal dosage for this animal for, you know, um, uh, is it like a skin irritant? Is it like an eye irritant? 
all this testing that EPA has to perform, all of it is going to be done using either in vitro tests or basically alternatives. Got it. So I'd like to use this channel to empower our listeners to impact change. So for the average Joe who's listening to this and they feel passionate about reducing animal testing, what can they do to influence policy or influence change? Uh, Just like anything else, I think, um, speak up. Every time that you see something is wrong, please speak up and say something and try to convey your concern. Remember that for all these companies, they survive because we pay for them, right? So um, a lot of people refuse to buy these products. But remember, just by refusal, you're not necessarily sending a message. But if you actually proactively refuse to buy a product because it's been tested on animals, write a review, send them an, send them an email, and basically help them that way. Um, the other way is that there are a lot of nonprofits that work on alternatives to animal testing. They take care of education. They take care of these campaigns. So that includes PCRM or Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. They're amazing. Uh, so please uh, follow their work. Uh, there is PETA. PETA has a very good center for um, alternatives to animal testing. Uh, you can check that out. Um, uh, another organization is uh, the White Coat Waste Project. Um, and another one is Center for Contemporary Science uh, Sciences. Um, and their CEO is Aisha Akhtar. She is a, uh, she's an MD and MPH, Master of Public Health. Um, so these organizations, they all advocate for alternatives to animal testing. Support them. You can support them with money, donations, of course, or um, signing their petitions. Uh, so these are the ways that you can contribute. But then on a, on a personal level, just when you see something is wrong, please do something. i give you an example. Like As a scientist, I go to a lot of conferences. And a lot of times I see, like, I give you a actual actual example. So I went to biophysics conference earlier this year, and a part of biophysics is electrophysiology. So looking at neurons and electricity, how basically neurons work. And there is literally this torture device. I don't really have any other way to, to describe it, where you restrain a mouse and you basically give them electrical shock. And, you know, I uh, went and asked for alternatives. I said, you know, why are you using this? And I will not support this because, you know, for these reasons. And, you know, it just takes more people to proactively say something. When when you see something is wrong, say something. So write reviews, write emails, and, you know, support others who do this. I'm just trying to pinpoint what's the thing that can have the most impact. You mentioned a lot of good suggestions there. So speaking up, writing reviews, sharing with others, and just being more proactive. But a lot of these drugs or products, they can't be passed by the FDA unless animal testing is done. So would you say policy is the limiting factor here? Yeah, policy makes a huge impact. And not only that, but also it allows exploring alternatives and improving alternatives. Um, so, but like the, the way that policies work is typically a lot of organizations, such as the ones that I named, they work 
with policymakers like Cory Booker, for instance, and then they can introduce these laws um, so they can get passed. So the way that it works is basically when the politician is supporting animal testing, then you know you can voice your concern by calling to calling their office uh, senators or U.S. representatives or anyone, writing letters. So yeah, it's that. Uh, or supporting organizations that that change policy, because like any other policy, you have to, you know, influence the votes, right? So it's your voting and telling them that this is not something that you want done with your tax money. And also, I guess another thing that is important is just showing the truth of what happens to animals, because most people really don't have a clear vision of what animal testing looks like. And fun fact is it's always banned to be recorded and published. So that's that was the big red flag for me. So we had like a biomedical ethics class. And in the class, before they prepared us to go and visit the animal facility, they said, you know, no pictures allowed uh, or recording. And I said, I remember I said, you know, why? We are like a public university. It's being done with taxpayers' money. Um, and they said, well, if people see that, they uh, they may get emotional, quote unquote. And then I said, if this is done by their tax money, don't they have the right to see what ha- what happens with their money? So just know that like anything else, if people see the actual footage, if they see what's happening to these animals, uh, most people don't want to support it. And the fact that, you know, you educate public that Moving away from animal testing only means that we are going to have safer and better ways to advance science. Would you say supporting these organizations, signing petitions, is that enough to speed things up? Because like you mentioned, FDA version 1 that has been done during World War II, and only now are we working towards version 2.0, the Modernization Act. So, I mean, why does it take so long? And is there any impactful way we can speed things up? Because at the end of the day, even if everyone changes their minds, everyone is against animal testing, but if the law still requires that all these drugs need to undergo animal testing to be approved, then people still need to do it, even though they might be against it, right? So I feel like that's one of the biggest hurdles that we need to target. I mean, it's like any anything else where you want to change the law. It's not going to happen. There is no easy and fast solution for it, unfortunately. Um, but it means that two things have to happen simultaneously. One is pressure on politicians by public and by scientists. And second is basically individual actions that educate public on it. But there is no easy solution. It's like anything else, like gun control or like, I don't know, abortion or anything else, just, you know, you see how, how long these things take to, um, and then how much back and forth is involved. But with animal testing, hopefully it's not like that, but more like it just takes time to, to change laws. But I would say if there are any students watching this or listening to this, just know that, you know, if you attend a class where they are mandating students to do animal testing, if they are, or not, or in, even not mandating, but for, you know, no reason they're doing dissection or anything like that, just know that how much power you have to actually change this. Um, there are lots and lots of labs that are being shut down 
throughout the country because uh, students start a campaign and they take support from organizations that I mentioned. And then, um, you know, over time, they within one generation, we literally just like shut down these labs. So know that there you have that power. So if there is a lab that does animal testing and if a student is dedicated enough, know that they have that power to make a huge deal and make significant changes for at least those animals. And every time that we do that, it builds up the case for other instances. And also for students who are working on computer sciences, STEM uh, students, just know that you can always um, dedicate your career and your research to finding better alternatives. Um, and every time that you do that, you are making the case stronger and stronger and make the transition uh, faster. Yeah, 100% agree. Students can make a huge impact on their campuses. I remember when I was an undergrad at the University of British Columbia back in the days, there was still a lab that was doing testing on monkeys. But within like three to four years, that lab has shut down due to just students protesting against animal testing. So... Yeah, whether you're a student or someone in the workforce, you have the ability to impact change. Systems are not set in stone and rules are meant to be broken. Um, I just have a question that popped up. So for cosmetics, right, if people feel very passionate against animal testing, then they can, of course, boycott these products and go for, quote unquote, cruelty free products. And if the demand changes enough, then this can definitely cause suppliers to shift their focus on more animal-friendly products. And I mean, this trend has been increasing over the recent years. But for drugs and other medicines, number one, how can people determine if animal testing had been done? And number two, is it even possible to boycott these like you would consumer products and go for cruelty-free alternatives? Like... I would assume a lot of these medicines, you're, you're stuck with a limited number of options, all of which have to be animal tested. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a good question. And there is no clear answer here. Um, there are cases where um, you could actually do that. Um, you could request a drug that is not tested on animals, or at least it's not developed based on um, animal research. Uh, an example of that is the flu shot. So you could, you can always ask for the egg-free version uh, that is vegan, and some centers actually provide that. Uh, it's probably not because they really care about animals, but in that case, like for egg allergy, uh, there is uh, alternatives. So sometimes there are alternatives. Sometimes you can think about how um, necessary is it is to to take this medication are we talking about life-threatening thing that you have to take or is it like a um, flu vaccine that you can decide whether you want to take it or not um, and um, but at the end of the day majority of drugs have been tested on animals and I think the right way to ask this question is not, um, you know, about the drugs that we already have available, but where we are going with this. So 50 years from now, do we want to still be using pigeons for communication? Do we still want to be relying on horses? Or do we want to 
be in a more advanced society. So I think a lot of our focus should be more like where should we put our investment in terms of money, research, time, education, rather than trying to see what drugs are tested on animals because it's going to be pretty much every drug at this point. All right, it's time to start wrapping things up here. I'm curious to hear your story and background a bit more. I see that you've started the Allied Scholars for Animal Protection. You're part of the Good Food Institute. So yeah, how did you get into all of this? Basically, I always the question for me always was, how can I be the most impactful um, in what I do? And um, I wasn't familiar. I didn't know what I know today. So at some point, I was really curious about fixing the environment. So I did chemical engineering. Then I felt really bad about cancer. So I wanted to do cancer research, which is what I did. And then after my doctorate, I really wanted to work on pandemics and really clinical research. So that's what I did. But really, every time I noticed that, it always comes back to uh, the food system. So whether it's pandemics, antibiotic resistance, top causes of death, such as uh, cardiovascular diseases and cancer, it always comes back to uh, animal consumption. And that's why I decided that the best thing I can do, and honestly anyone, um, is to work on the food system. Because if you want to save the environment, if you want to prevent pandemics, literally the top causes of death in the world, the biggest threats. In biomedical research, for instance, the biggest threat to human life is um, antibiotic resistance and the pandemic that is antibiotic resistant. So uh, we know that... Um, 80% of antibiotics in the U.S. and globally is fed to animals, um, which is, these are like medically relevant antibiotics that lead to antibiotic resistance. So literally anything that is important comes back to animal consumption, and that's why the best thing that we can be doing is to do that. So just wanted to clarify, uh, you mentioned a lot of these antibodies are fed to animals, and then it leads to antibiotic resistance in us? Is that correct? Or, like, how does this all work? Um, the way it works is that um, antibiotics that we consume get secreted to, to the environment. So um, there are two ways that antibiotic resistance um, develops. One is that you don't, you keep suppressing bacteria with antibiotics. So in humans, for instance, when you over, when you, if you don't finish your antibiotic course and you um, give up the, as soon as your symptoms go away. Um, the, uh, there will be certain bacteria that survive and they get a chance to actually replicate. So now you have a bacteria, a bacterium that is antibiotic resistant, and then you can pass that to other people. So in the future, if those people get the same infection and take the same antibiotics, it's not going to work in them. So there's that. And then other thing is that antibiotics get secreted out um, um, and it finds its way to, you know, uh, uh, to water, to groundwater, to the environment. And that's how antibiotic resistance can, can spread. And when it goes to water, uh, it can be found on other plants, on other animals. And then you, people are exposed to these animals, people are exposed to animal products. Uh, it comes to 
comes in contact with humans. Humans go to hospitals, then it spreads in hospitals, and that's how you literally start a new pandemic with antibiotic resistance. Okay, got it. Yeah, basically, um, I just wanted to work on the root cause of all these issues and also knowing that the amount of suffering involved, the amount of number of, I guess, the, the, the number of individuals who are impacted, in this case, billions of animals in addition to humans, um, it always comes down to animal consumption. So that's why I work at GFI, uh, Good Food Institute. We develop uh, the science and technology for better alternatives, um, alternative proteins. And also with my nonprofit, um, we basically promote veganism in universities um, because it's completely lacking in universities. And we believe that we earlier talked about uh, lawmakers, but we really want to train the future lawmakers and politicians and lawyers and scientists who understand that whatever they're interested in, they can apply it to um, veganism and animal advocacy and understand that if they are becoming, a, becoming an environmentalist, if they are becoming a politician... Um, they can be educated that a lot of issues that they're going to be working with uh, are going to be related to animal consumption. And if they really want to be effective, you should be focusing on that. So your organization, the Allied Scholars for Animal Protection, can you give us more details on that? Like, what exactly do you do to empower students to promote animal protection in universities? Yeah, so ASAP or Allied Scholars for Animal Protection is my nonprofit. Um, it's a tax exempt nonprofit that I started. Um, our work includes starting registered student organizations and chapters in all top universities in the US. And then what we do, our work has three pillars. One is outreach. So we are constantly on campus doing outreach, reaching out to new vegans, making new vegans, um, and basically building the community there. The second um, pillar is education and empowerment. So that's when we um, basically bring all this education that we are talking about today um, to universities. We train uh, medical students on nutrition of plant-based diet, and um, we try to have career workshops for vegans so they understand that if they're into environment, law, policy, whatever they, they are interested in, they can make it about veganism. And we uh, basically empower them to make sure that they can be effective advocates um, even after graduation. And then the third pillar is working with dining halls to go plant-based, and that way we make it easy for everyone in universities to be vegan. So we are building a positive feedback loop that it's sustainable, and we train the future leaders that um, graduate only to become the next generation of, of thought leaders. So basically, we are training the next Cory Bookers and Eric Adams. Nice, nice. And quick question on the Good Food Institute. What are some of the notable results or accomplishments that you've seen from them recently? So Good Food Institute has many different departments uh, that work on science and technology, which is where I am, as well as policy work, 
for instance, uh, there was a whole thing about, you know, plant-based milks not being able to use the word milk. Um, and we know that this is something that is happening in Europe as well. Um, dairy industry is fighting back because, you know, their end is near, so they want to fight back. Um, you know, Good Food Institute tried to work with policymakers and, you know, we made sure that it didn't happen. Um, so that's one accomplishment, for instance. Um, or that when the government is trying to explore increasing manufacturing capacity in the U.S., uh, the policy team works with them, with the government, gives them information. And that's why for the first time, Biden's administration is including alternative proteins, including cultivated meat in their agenda, which is a big accomplishment. Um, then we do a lot of exploration of what are missing, um, how to scale up alternative proteins, and um, uh, basically what are the gaps so we can um, put money and grants and support in those areas to make sure that um, the field as a whole advances as quickly as possible. And everything we do is open source. So that's another benefit because we are nonprofit. And so we make everything publicly available so everyone can use. Um, but yeah. Nice. I'll definitely share all these resources in the YouTube description or the show notes of this episode. From your years of experience in this space, if you could distill down to three main lessons or call to actions that you would like to share with our audience, what would that be? Um, if you are young or you have the potential, um, definitely dedicate your career to it. And if you don't know how, uh, you can contact me, I'll help you. But just know that whatever you're doing, whether it's um, you know computer sciences, whether it's social work, whether it's art, um, anything you do, you can make it about uh, veganism. And I guarantee you that there is nothing as impactful as promoting veganism that you can be doing with your life. Um, I challenge you to show me that there is one thing, something else that can save more lives, can reduce suffering more than promoting veganism. Um, and if you show me that, I'll quit, quit my job. I'll go do that, but there's not. So I think the best thing that you can do is to dedicate your future. And if you can't change your career, you can always donate your money to uh, organizations that um, do this kind of thing. And remember that these people exist. And for them to support, they need financial support. So if you can't do it yourself, you can always support others. Um, that do that. And last thing is, please don't be silent. Um, just know that you have the power. Use your voice. Uh, make a difference around you every time you see animal cruelty, every time you see animal abuse. Say something. Um, I think there is a lot of pressure on us to be quiet because our message is inconvenient. Um, no one likes to hear that their food choices, their purchases are hurting animals. So as a result, there is an expectation for us not to be vocal to, of course, like people want to be, um, you know, living in ignorance. Ignorance is a bless. And no one really wants to get educated, which only means how important it is for us to speak up. So 
as long as you do something, I think um, you are good. Just know that in the face of injustice, silence is not an option. So I'm a pretty big introvert. I hate confronting random people in the public and just talking to strangers. So what advice would you give introverts like me to push myself to speak up? That's funny you say that because I'm also an introvert. Um, and another perspective to just look at this is that it's not about what you're comfortable doing. It's about what needs to be done. Um, I'm in front of cameras way more than I, I'm comfortable. <laughs> Every time I uh, I see myself, I hear to my own podcast or like my voice, I hear my own speeches i cringe um it never stopped being annoying for me to be in front of cameras uh, i always have to put myself out of my comfort zone and um but the only reason i do that is because we need to be talking about this so um i think putting ourselves removing ourselves from the center of problem and putting animals the real victims at the center would really help us clarify what needs to be done and so just just a fresh perspective, right? So it's not always about what we want to do. It's more about what needs to be done and what needs to be said. So there is that. Um, I also say that a lot of things are skills that people can learn. For instance, when I go on the street to talk to people, um, English is not even my first language. I'm an introvert, but the skills that I picked up by just being trained really helped me to be more confident about what I say or what I do. Um, but at the end of the day, um, not every activism is just like going to a street and just talk to people. But when it comes to uh, advocacy, it's like a lot about publications, making podcasts, making videos, putting content online, diffusing all these uh, spread of misinformation, right? Saying something when you see something is wrong. Um, and uh, in your personal life, when you're talking to, you know, your partners, your your parents, your friends, um, um, and all of that. And, and introverts can still, like, donate money. Uh, if they make enough, they can just, um, you know, support others. And, like, there is a ton of people that I support on Patreon. And it doesn't have to be like $200, but like even like, um, you know, $2, $5 monthly uh, to a lot of activists that do this full time, that allows them to survive and be doing that, um, you know, more sustainably. Yeah, that's very helpful. And another thing that really helps me is, I assume most of our listeners are at least in their 20s. And let's say the average human lives around like 80 to 90 years. So we only have around 60 to 70 years left, which is roughly 20-something 20, 20 thousand days left. That's not a huge number, right? And each day is a chance for you to influence change, right? There's so many opportunities every day, whether it's speaking with your colleagues or friends or family or encountering some incidents where you can speak up to raise more awareness about the issues you're passionate about. And each day you don't speak up is one day lost. And, you know, you're only left with 20-something thousand days left in your life. Time is ticking, so 
each day you don't speak up is one more missed opportunity. And I think this fear of regretting to not do something when I'm given the opportunity, and this something can have the ability to improve the lives of billions of animals in the future. I think this is a, this regret pushes me to speak up and take action, even though I'm an introvert. But um, yeah, thank you so much for all your insights. I learned so much from this episode. Please hand off to the audience where they can contact you, learn more about your work or any other resources you would like to share. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and uh, playing your own role to spread this information. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, to contact me, one of the best ways would be using our website, uh, alliedscholars.org. There is a contact form there and it'll come to me directly. Um, you can also follow my work on Twitter and YouTube. Um, and my handle is Dr. Fraz Harsini. Um, and you can contact me through that as well. Perfect. I'll add all of these links in the show notes or the YouTube description of this episode. Thank you so much again for coming on and let's definitely keep in touch. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode of EcoChat. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you use. We're also on Twitter and YouTube. It really helps others find our show in the search algorithm. With that, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time on EcoChat.